All right. Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Tonight we're going to deal with uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the uh, seven-sealed book or the seven-sealed scroll. We're taking taking this uh, journey through Revelation as it's teaching us about the destiny of Jesus Christ and uh, we cover the uh, period uh, of the church age and the, the letters to the churches. And then last week, we saw that transitional movement as John went from uh, the, the focus on the church that was on earth to the focus of the church that is in heaven, the heavenly throne room, the heavenly worship center, the heavenly temple. And we saw that description of what was going on there and uh, all of the different persons, all of the different creatures, and, of course, that incredible vision of the throne itself. We've seen a couple of other throne visions in the Scriptures. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel all had throne visions, and we see that John's is very similar to those, yet there's one element of John's throne vision that is different than the ones of the previous prophets, and that is he is getting a vision of the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that tonight as we move into chapter 5. Now, as we begin, I just want to, I want to uh, just kind of reiterate, last week I gave you some, just some breakdowns of the different ways that people approach the book of Revelation. We, talk, we talked a little bit about uh, the different, the different uh, uh, structures that people apply, the different uh, ways they see it. Some look at it as uh, primarily a, a symbolic book or a figurative book and kind of like an allegory. Or others take it very literally. Some believe it's mostly been fulfilled already. Some believe that most of it has yet to be fulfilled. And, of course, there's the different ways in which people believe it will be fulfilled. And so we went over some of that ground last week, and I just want to, I just want to point out as we begin, we're, we're getting into really the meat of, of the book of Revelation, and we're going to be dealing with a lot of symbolic uh, uh, words and numbers and ideas, and, and Revelation is just full of, of hidden messages and hidden truth, and they're repeated throughout the book. And it's very difficult really, to interpret a book like Revelation unless you really know what the author was uh, had in mind or what his intents were. And, and, you know, we have some good ideas about the, what the message that John was trying to convey or that God was trying to convey through John, but we still have to make choices. We have to make choices uh, when to take something literally, when to take it figuratively, figuratively, or symbolically, and so what we're going to do, what I do, and, and you know, in all my years as a Bible teacher, I've always tried to follow the, the to me, what I believe is the, the simplest formula, and what I believe is, is really the best way to stay grounded and stay, uh, and not get yourself off in, in, uh, in some, you know, uh, wild field somewhere, and that is just to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Most of what John sees in the book of Revelation has precedent in 
the prophetic books of the Old Testament. So if you are familiar with a book like Ezekiel or Daniel or Isaiah or Zechariah, and, and of course there's different Psalms and there's different other prophets that speak to this, you're going to recognize a lot of the scenery. John is seeing a lot of things that have roots and have foundations in the prophetic tradition of the scriptures. And, you know, it, and what, that's comforting to me. That just, you know, uh, a lot of people look at Revelation as kind of this book that just kind of comes up out of nowhere and has uh, just, you know, just, just this wild uh, vision or wild dream that really has no connection to the rest of Scripture. But that is, that's not the case. This, this book would fit very, uh, uh, very properly, would fit very well with um, the books like Isaiah, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel. Parts of Ezekiel and, and, uh, have, have almost identical descriptions of what John sees. So if, if the book of Revelation was in the Old Testament instead of the New Testament, we, we probably would look at it, you know, a lot differently than we do. But, of course, God didn't choose to, you know, give this revelation to the Old Testament prophets. He gave it to John, a New Testament prophet, and so it's in the right place. But uh, you can really, if you go back, and, and I always encourage anyone who studies Revelation, before you get too deep into Revelation, you need to take the time and do the homework, do the legwork, and get familiar with the prophetic tradition, particularly um, those prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of God being established on the earth. So that's the approach that we take. That's the approach that I take. Uh, if you've got the study notes tonight that I emailed, if you didn't get them, you can uh, just send me an email, bishopaldridge at gmail.com. be happy to send you my notes. I share my notes with you every week. And you'll see in the notes uh, constant uh, references to uh, scriptures in the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. And that's the best way for me, and I think the best way for us as, as believers, to, to stay grounded. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people read Revelation, and they'll teach out of Revelation, and they'll, they won't have, you know, they'll, they'll, and I'm not trying to be judgmental or, or, or trying to say, you know, I'm better than this guy or that guy, but you listen to what some of them talk about, and it just has no connection to anything else in the Bible. And that's, that's just not the way that the Bible works. We know, it's, we know that each book in the Bible is its own individual entity, but we also know that the same Holy Spirit that was speaking through Ezekiel and speaking through Daniel is speaking through John. And so we would expect to see a consistency and an and a interconnectedness between all of the prophetic works in the Bible, and it is there. And that's one of the ways that we can really uh, be comfortable that this revelation is of God. It is, it is truly of the Spirit because it is very uh, intricately connected to all of the prophecies that have come to pass or that have been given prior and so this, this is really the conclusion. It's the, you know, it's the final chapter of the prophetic scriptures. And uh, if, you have, uh, if you have familiarity with what came before, 
Revelation takes on a much more stable and and sure uh, structure. And if you don't, and you're just kind of ring, you're just kind of winging it out of left field, it's very easy to get off off track and get get lost in in some of the things that uh, that John is talking about. So uh, I, I, I want to make that clear. If there's any comments or questions, there, be happy. I invite uh, and encourage your participation in these Bible studies. Uh, I learn as much from from you as I think you learn from me. And your questions help me and your comments help me to, to kind of gauge the temperature of, of whether they, what's trying to be communicated is being communicated. So please feel free to, to speak up if you have something to add or want some clarity on something that we're talking about. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's start with Chapter 5. Uh, save a little time. I'm just going to... I'm not going to read the scriptures themselves. You should have your Bible open. You should be able to follow along. But uh, chapter 5, John begins to describe a very significant service that is taking place in heaven. One thing you're going to notice about Revelation, that this is really what makes it such a unique book. It's it's really... Uh, you know, most of the books we read in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, the Gospels or the Book of Acts, uh, it, they, they're very linear books. You know, the Gospel starts with the birth of Jesus, goes through the childhood of Jesus, goes through his baptism, his temptation, his early ministry, you know, and, and, and you know, everything one step follows the other until he gets to Jerusalem, to gets to the cross, the resurrection. Then the story picks up in Acts. From the resurrection, they go straight to the ascension and then to the day of Pentecost. And then it just follows the church very linearly, very very chronologically. And that's the way we're kind of used to reading in the New Testament. or, or where we, We're used to reading things chronologically. But Revelation is not a chronological book. At least it's not arranged chronologically. It's it, it, the structure of, reg, of, of Revelation is built, about, is built around rituals, around ceremonies, around worship activities. And, and you know, John describes three very specific, uh, what we would probably call sacramental uh, uh, services or sacramental events. Remember, he's, he's in the heavenly temple. God's throne is in the Holy of Holies. He's... he's, he's he sees the candlestick. He sees the sea of glass, uh, uh, of, of the crystal sea. He sees the, the altar of incense. He sees the Ark of the Covenant. He's, he's in the temple. And what happens in a temple is worship. And the imagery that John is seeing here is very typical. It's very typical of uh, the type of things that happened in the actual temple on earth during the, the period of time that uh, we know as the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, let me just speak uh, very briefly to, to those two feasts and, those two, um, and their relationship to God's purpose and plan. Uh, we know from, from history that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ took place during the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We know that the 
Holy Spirit was poured out during the Feast of Pentecost. Matter of fact, this Sunday, uh, our first Sunday back at Lighthouse is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, and, and we know that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, on, during the Feast of Pentecost. So it's, it's clear that historically these feasts that we celebrate on earth or that the Jewish people were celebrating on earth were, were not just arbitrary holidays. No, not like, well, we're just going to pick the last Monday of May and make it Memorial Day with no real connection. These feasts are connected at least uh, the, the, the first uh, three were, the Passover, Unleavened Bread, and, and Pentecost, were connected to specific events in God's plan and purpose for his church. So we have the redemptive work during Passover. We have the, uh, the indwelling and filling baptismal work of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost. And so it would be consistent to uh, not just say, well, this imagery is taken from, but it would be consistent calendar-wise for the remaining activities or the remaining events that God has planned for his church, that God has planned for the world, to follow that same pattern, that same connection to the, the feast that he outlined, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 16 or Leviticus chapter 23, you can see all of the feasts and the, and the way that they were assigned to, to fulfill those feasts. Now, there are three feasts that take place in the fall uh, of, his, uh, of the fall time of the year. We, the spring feasts we've already covered with Passover, Unleavened Bread, and Pentecost. There are three feasts that take place in the fall. Uh, one of these feasts is called Rosh Hashanah. It's called the Feast of the Trumpets. It takes place usually on our calendar in the month of September. And it's the celebration of the Jewish New Year. And uh, I don't know, you might remember as a kid, you know, getting a couple of days off from school because of Rosh Hashanah, you know. Uh, and then 10 days after that feast or that event, 10 days from the, the Jewish New Year, they have what is called the Day of Atonement. Now, that's a very, that's a very important day. That's a, that is the day that uh, the, the, if you remember that description in Leviticus, they would bring the two goats into the, uh, up to the temple. Uh, they would confess the sins of the people over the head of one of the goats and, and then send that goat off into the wilderness to, to die, and they would sacrifice the other goat and and would make atonement for uh, the sins of the people, would make atonement for the national sins of Israel. This is what allowed the covenant with Israel to move forward another year. And what's really interesting about the Feast Day of Atonement, I, I promise I'm not going to spend all night on this, but I want you to understand the, the background of what John's seeing. What's really interesting about the Day of Atonement is it was the only day it was the one day of the year that the high priest would actually be allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Uh, and there was that one day, if, you're, if, you, if you know the setup there, the priest would bring uh, a, a hyssop uh, 
uh, sponge with, uh, with the blood of the sacrifice, and he would shake it seven times over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat. And that mercy seat that, uh, ar- that, that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat was, the, was, was where the atonement, the covering, would be made for the sins of the people, and uh, the covenant with God would be renewed for the following year. And then five days after that, the whole nation would celebrate the renewal of that covenant with the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Feast of uh, uh, what they call Sukkot. And it's, it, was, it was done for uh, a remembrance. It was done as a remembrance for their time of wilderness journeys for the 40 years that they spent uh, in the wilderness where God took care of them. You know, the manna fell uh, every day. The water from the rock followed them and, and all of that. And it would be a feast of remembrance and a, and a feast of celebration as they were uh, remembering what it was like to be pilgrims and, and sojourners and strangers and aliens. And it would be after the feast of, after the wilderness journey, they would have received their reward, the promised land, the land that God showed Abraham. And so all of that, and I know I went through it very quickly, uh, but you can study all of this in your Bible. It's all there. Um, all of that would be packed into a period of time of less than a month. Remember, we would go from, from the first day of the Jew, Jewish New Year, that's Rosh Hashanah, ten days later, would be the Day of Atonement. Five days after that, the Feast of Tabernacles would start and would go for seven days. So you'd have a total of 21 days in which uh, all of these events would take place. It's you know, very, very close together. And so when we look at what John is witnessing, we haven't gotten to the other two sacraments that he sees, um, all of the imagery that he's seeing is taken from these uh, worship services that would be held at the temple and, and, and at the, uh, uh, the temple in Jerusalem to, for these celebrations. And so I think it's very interesting that the structure of the book of Revelation, rather than being chronological, it's actually built around these, this ritual keeping of the the feast and the keeping and, and the observances of of these uh, sacramental things that are happening in heaven. This is, you know, the, in, in Hebrews we are told that everything that was around the temple on earth was built or a copy of or a shadow of what was going on in heaven. That the earthly was a was a mirror image or a shadow image of what was happening in heaven, and that's what we see here. These, these events are happening in heaven, but the impact of them, the, 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 the effect of them, is being felt on earth. So we want to keep, we just want to keep that in our minds, that we're not looking at something, uh, this happens first, then this second, then this third, then this fourth. It's not like, it's not like Genesis you know, chapter 1, we're on the first day, and then on the second day, and then on the third day. John is just seeing these ritual events that are taking place. And so it's kind of moving back and forth on the calendar. So it's very difficult. I just want you to be clear. It's very difficult to really assign uh, a definitive temporal structure uh, 
to these to these events. We're going to do the best we can, but a lot of this is really just uh, trying to understand the the overall or the big picture of the impact that these events have on what happens to God's people on earth. So what's the first service that he sees? What's the first ritual that he observes? The opening of a scroll. Uh, I don't know how many of you, uh, you know, we have our books. You, you should have a, plenty of books in your house, and, and, and maybe you have, uh, you know, seen something very similar. Uh, but the, the ancient form of the book was they would take a very long, uh, a very long uh, piece of uh, uh, papyrus or of animal skin or, or whatever they would use to pass for paper, and they would write on it, and then they would roll it up like a scroll, like you roll up a carpet. And that was, you know, that was what a book looked like in, uh, in the early days of the church. And John has seen a scroll, and this scroll has been uh, given seven wax seals, or, or seven seals. I don't know if, if, if you can picture what I'm, what I'm talking about here, but where the, where the scroll is rolled up, where the lip of the, of, of, of the paper would be, that you would begin to open to open the scroll, it would be sealed shut with with a wax seal or a or a seal that would be there to keep the book from being opened. It would it was a safety measure, a security measure, and the seal itself had two functions. One, it was a mark of authenticity. Uh, we are told that when we get saved, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, as an authentication of our of our relationship to God, and so when you would look on this seal, you would see the insignia of the one who 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 wrote the book, or the one who commissioned the book, or the one who was presenting the book. You would see that insignia, and it would be embedded into the seal itself, and that would tell you that this is the real deal. This is an authentic. Uh, book. This has the this has the the backing of the person who put that mark on it. You would also uh, use the seal as a a way a test or a way of of limiting who could open the book. Only someone who had the matching seal, uh, the matching you know, only someone who had the the matching uh, device that would fit that seal. Think of like a key in a lock. Only a person with the right key would be authorized to open, to break those seals and open the book. And that's, that's what he is talking uh, about, what he's describing. And, uh, and, and, and it's really kind of an interesting description. We're, we're not told exactly what the book is, but it has these seven seals and this, these marks of authority and, and authenticity. And uh, these, these marks would be used for things like, you know, court documents. They would be used for, like, wills and, you know, last will and testament. They would be used for uh, instructions or orders or commands that would be given from the king or the governor. Uh, you know, like, so if, if, if the king wanted to send a message to one of his governors and, in his kingdom, he would write it and then seal it, and only the governor would have the, the, the right to open it up and, and read whatever the instructions were from, from the king. And so uh, it, it, we don't know exactly 
what this book is. We, we, you know, a lot of people have made some guesses, and you know, I can guess as good as anybody else, but the, the truth is the scriptures never tell us what the book is. They only tell us that they, they have looked in heaven, they have looked on earth, they have looked under the earth, and they have found no one who has the right or the authority to open it. No one who, can, who has, who has uh, proven that they are, are worthy or they, are, they have the power or the right to break these seals. And this is something that's very concerning to John. Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> it, the description here tells us that John weeps. John, John is heartbroken at the thought that this book might not be opened. And, and, and from that, you know, we can, we can sort of infer or surmise that this book is very important. This is, this is very critical to, to John, to God's people, to the church, uh, and, and, and the context of the book or the information in the book is really essential to the redemption and reconciliation of God's people and of heaven and earth. You know, so everything is on pause. Everything is being held up because there's nobody who is able or worthy or has proven themselves capable of opening the seals. Because by opening the seals, when you opened a sealed document uh, in this kind of fashion, you became responsible for carrying out whatever the... Uh, whatever the instructions or whatever the, the, the commands or whatever the charge was, you would be responsible for seeing it through. And, and so when he, he uses this, this all-encompassing uh, description that you know, heaven above, earth, and below the earth, there's no angelic being, no human being, no demonic being, there's, there's, there's no one, no person in all of the universe, who is able or has the right to open this book? And this is very concerning to John because this book needs to be opened in order for the redemptive uh, uh, promises and the reconciliation work to be completed. But John is assured, John is assured by one of the 24 elders. We met the 24 elders last week. I won't go back over them. We talked about them last week. But one of the 24 elders tells them that someone has finally prevailed. And that gives the impression of a great struggle, a great conflict. Someone has prevailed and has been proven, has been found worthy to open the book. So we don't know how long this book's been sealed. We don't know... Uh, you know, we don't know exactly what's in it, but apparently there was a great conflict over who would open it and uh, who would have the authority to, to, to carry out its, its purpose and enforce whatever, uh, whatever this book was designed to enforce. And, of course, we know that wonderful, that beautiful description, the two unique titles that are given to the one who will open a book. The one who will open the book is called the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Now, if you go back to Genesis 49, you'll remember the prophecy of Jacob about Judah, that 
that Judah would rule over the, the, the other tribes, would rule over all of God's people. And of course we know that David was uh, of the tribe of Judah and we know that Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And then that second title, the root of David, which is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 11, where the kingdom of the Messiah is described. You remember Isaiah chapter 11, where the, where the lion will lay down with the lamb and the, the, the child will play by the cobra's hole. And, and you know, this, 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 this beautiful description of how the kingdom of the Messiah will bring peace and and prosperity and and salvation uh, to the whole world. And so, uh, under those under those contexts, we can we can really see why this book is so vital and so necessary. If, if this is the if this is the means by which the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is finally and and irrevocably established in the earth and and takes authority over all other kingdoms, then this is something that we should be desiring to happen. We should be praying for it to happen. As we were instructed to pray by Jesus himself, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever we say those words, we need to really understand what we're asking when we're asking for the kingdom of God to come and the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, are, we, we think of that, you know, kind of sometimes I think a little, maybe a little casually, maybe we don't take time to really understand what that all means. But when you begin to look at what happens as, these, as this process begins and as the world is prepared, what we're praying for is a very, very sacred, very significant, very critical uh, uh, thing to happen and and you know of the of the greatest uh, of the greatest impact you know the world you know we keep hearing people today saying well after this you know, this situation we're dealing with now oh the world will never be the same and you know they've said that before you know they said that after 9-11 they said that after different events but you know truly truly when God begins to establish his kingdom in this world, uh, the world will never be the same. And it can never be the same. And so this is a mighty moment. This is an incredible moment. And that's when we get to that special verse in, in verses 9 and 10, that song of praise. And uh, what John sees what John sees is, is a beautiful description. He sees the Lamb the Lamb of God that had been slain. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a very clear reference to Jesus Christ. There's, there's no doubt, you know, there's no doubt that the Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. There's no doubt He is the root of David. There is no doubt He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And, uh, but the reference to the Lamb is is really uh, a, a reference to what or by what means he has proven himself worthy. By what means 
he has prevailed over all the other uh, you know, pretenders and all the other false claimants to, to the throne. He has proven who he is, and he has proven that he is worthy and that he is deserving by becoming the Lamb of God, by his death on the cross and by his resurrection. This is what has qualified him to be the one to open this book and, and bring its contents to pass. And, and, of course, that beautiful testimony of the Lamb of God is unique to John. He, in John's uh, Gospel, he quotes John the Baptist as saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. So, description of the Lamb. Again, we see some of those symbolic numbers, the number seven, seven horns, seven eyes, uh, you know, references to the omnipotence and the omniscience of the Lamb. And we hear the new song of worship. The new song of worship is heard in heaven. The worthy is the Lamb is now the cry of the redeemed. And, and all of creation joins in as the time of redemption is at hand. So what we know by the presence of the Lamb of God, what we know by the song that the, the, the worshipers in heaven are singing is that this book and the events that are taking place around it and the events that are yet to come with the trumpets and with the, the bowls, these events are redemptive in character and nature. I think most people look at the book of Revelation as a book of, of death, destruction, doom, the apocalypse, uh, you know, just, just, just horrible, horrible, horrible things that happen. And, you know, a lot of people just want to avoid it, want to discount it, want to just, just pretend that it's some kind of, uh, you know, fancy allegory, that none of this stuff is real. But we need to understand that the redemption of this world and the reconciliation of heaven and earth, you know, God has offered terms of peace. God has offered terms of peace to all men. God has offered terms of peace to every living creature on, in the earth. And, and he, he's willing to accept anyone into his kingdom on these terms of peace. But for redemption to be completed, for heaven and earth to be reconciled. Those who oppose, who would fight, who would rebel, who would, uh, who would you know, basically mess it up for everybody else, uh, they have to, to be uh, either brought into line or they have to be removed and, and taken out of the way. And that's what this this book of Revelation about. It is a book about redemption in Christ. Now, we are used to redemption in Christ through the means of grace and faith and the justification through uh, the, the, the relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ. But for those that will not come by the way of peace, you know, when, when, when one nation or one kingdom comes up against another kingdom, you know, or if two kingdoms both claim the same border or the same land, you know, the, the, the right thing to do, the human thing to do, the, 
good thing to do is to try to negotiate terms of peace and say, okay, you know, this land is rightfully ours and, and, and we, have, we have the deed to it and you know, we, we're willing to let you live here, but you've got to live here under our, uh, under our, our, our government and under our rules and, and, and you're welcome to come and be part of it but you can never forget who it truly belongs to, and, 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 and you have to do render due honor, render due service uh, for that privilege. Uh, that's the right way to do it. And if people are willing to accept that, there's no need for conflict. But if people are not willing to accept that, then the only other way to settle the matter is through war, through conquest, through, through conflict. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation. The earth is the Lord's. And Christ is coming to take possession of it. And it would be so much better for all of us if people were willing to, to give uh, the due honor and, and, the due, and the due reverence and the due obedience. But of course we know many are not. And so to bring it all to bring peace to the whole world, to bring uh, uh, the kingdom of God into reality on earth um, is going to involve some confrontations between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But never forget, never forget the purpose here of this book is redemption, to bring all things, to reconcile all things all things back to God. Amen. Any comments or questions this far? Pastor, I was just thinking as you were talking that um, central in the in the in the book of Revelation, I also see there's a book of um, reminding us that the creation itself was implicit in the Word of God is that the old creation of man was is to worship. Right for Isaiah forty-three two twenty-one tells us that he had, he had formed us um, for for myself that we should support the praises of him that sent. I'm just trying to just tap in on um, that new song of worship um, that you talk about in that you talk about is heard in heaven. So mm -hmm. even in our, as we are redeemed, right. We need to get to the place where we must adore Him and worship Him and honor Him. So this is I, this is according to Isaiah 43 that we're created to to worship, right? And um, oh my Lord, this Revelation book here is a book that I that I truly don't don't understand fully, but as I look at it, I, I can see something there that will bring me to the place where I want to. As a redeemed saint, we want to honor God in his creation and give him praise and honor and worship. This is the kind of allegiance I, I believe that I have as a redeemed person. Amen. Amen. There is no, there is no greater um, cause for worship. Uh, you know, we, we certainly, you know, you mentioned creation and you know, creation by nature owes its existence to God and to the Lamb of God. And so it's right and it's good 
that you know the rocks cry out, that the winds and the waves roar, that even the angelic beings uh, lift up their voices in praise of their Creator. But our relationship is more than just the relationship of Creator and creature. We have this very, you know, out of all of God's creatures, just think this through, of all the, 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 the myriad forms of life that God has created, and, and who knows, on earth, I don't even know, I, would, I couldn't even guess how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of different life forms exist from, from the most microscopic, you know, uh, uh, germ cells to to the great you know, whales of the ocean, to the, the great beast of, 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 of the plains, all these millions of creatures. And who knows? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know anybody that knows what, what else might exist out there in the universe somewhere, you know? <laughs> we don't know what's, what, what's out there with all those suns and stars and planets. But out of all of them, out of all of them, there's only one of those creatures that God chose to redeem by the blood of the Son. Only one of those creatures that God condescended and lowered himself to become one of them, that he might redeem them. So even if, even if, you know, even if we can't really muster up the enthusiasm that the rest of creation has just for owing its existence to God, we who have been bought by the blood, uh, we have no excuse. No excuse. We should, you know, fill every hour of every day with praise and worship to the Lamb of God because he didn't have to do any of it. He could have left us as we were. And, and, and let us you know, reap the, the consequences of our sin and, and our rebellion. But I tell you, you're, 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 I'm with you on this one, uh, uh, Reverend. This is, this is just incredible eye-opening uh, revelation here, that even in eternity, even after we've been glorified, even after we've been resurrected, in our new bodies, we are still still giving praise to the Lamb of God for redeeming us. And, and that's just, you know, if, if, if you struggle, I don't know how many, you know, sometimes, I'll be honest, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first one to raise my hand. You know, sometimes I struggle with worship, you know, whether it's, you know, physical, you know, weariness or, or, or you know, don't feel great or maybe things in my life aren't... Uh, going exactly the way I would hope for them to go, whatever it is. You know, maybe I get concerned about, you know, how we are. You know, I can't be the only human being in the world that gets concerned about uh, what goes on in, in life and, you know, money and, 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 and the way the world is. And, and so sometimes, I, I, you know, I, I, I allow myself to fall into sort of a, a routine or, a, you know, just kind of fall into that, that just attitude of seeing worship as some kind of obligation. Yeah, I know I got to do it, but I don't really feel like it. You know, that, that, that's just, that's so, that's just, that's so weak on my part because I know 
what it took for Christ to save me. I know what it cost for him to redeem me. And, and there should never be uh, uh, any excuse or any reason in my heart and mind. And I go to know God understands that we're human beings and that we, we struggle, but there should, there's just no excuse for me not to lift my voice at least once a day. I mean, is that asking too much? Just once a day to say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who redeemed me to God by His blood, who made me a king and a priest and will let me reign on earth with Him. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And, and, and is it too much, really, to just... Lift your voice and say, you know what, Lord? You're, you're worthy. And I, I think we all could do, we could all do a little, a little better on that. Does anyone else, I'm sorry, does anyone else have a, a comment here or a question? Yes, Pastor. Um, verse 6, if you can kind of um, explain that a little bit um, in regards to the lamb and having the seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. How does that relate well, uh, to... Yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> we've seen this seven spirits uh, reference a couple of times already. Um, in the Bible, again, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. So that's, that's basically where I'm coming at this from. In... For example, in the book of Daniel, Daniel mentions horns quite a bit. Horns are mentioned in other uh, references, and they, they're usually, when they're used symbolically, they are used to refer to power. Now, seven is the number of completion or perfection. It's the number of, of you know, the sum of, of all things. So if we put the number seven and uh, we put it next to a horn, and we mean this symbolically, what we're saying is that this lamb has all the power or that his power is perfect. We would, we would use the, the word omnipotent. Uh, it means that he has all power, and that's the way we would interpret a symbol like that. So, and when you really, it's kind of odd, you know, we don't associate lambs very much with power. <laughs> That's not, you know, the lion, yes. If, 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 if the lion had seven horns, we'd all be like, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. But, um, you know, the lamb is the one that is just being described. And the eyes, the seven eyes, the seven spirits, is, again, the number seven means perfect or complete or total some, all, omni, and eyes in, in, in other scriptures is associated with wisdom or knowledge or understanding. So um, this is one of those, you know, the, the psalmist said, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and there's nothing hidden. So that, the, the, the fact that uh, this lamb has, is, is being described, and I know it's very difficult to, envision this. I wish we were all together. I could maybe put something on a projector and we'd have a visual reference, but you're just going to kind of have to use your imagination. But the, the number seven and combined with eyes 
basically means that the lamb is omniscient, has, has perfect understanding, perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge of everything that is happening on the earth, everything that is happening in heaven, everything that is happening in the spiritual realm and the physical realm, that there's nothing hidden. These, this, 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 uh, uh, you know, these, these eyes, these spirits have gone throughout the whole earth and have seen all that there is to see and have, have a perfect grasp of every situation. So what we're really talking, talking about there is um, the, what, the, these are words omniscient, omnipotent. These are words that, that describe deity. We've come across this before when we were talking about the divinity of Jesus Christ, this, this idea that um, Christ is more than a man. And, and more than just, you know, a demigod or, or an angel, that he is uh, God himself in the person of the Son, and that this Lamb of God is God the Son. And, you know, the, we know what the Bible says, that God gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so John's just connecting all the dots here, to let us know that the, the, the Lamb knows what needs to be done. He has a perfect understanding, uh, which qualifies him to be the one to open the book. And he has, he has the ultimate power. He can, he's the one who can actually bring it to pass. Think how, you know, think how sad it would be if you know, someone did open this book and, and, and knew what had to be done, to bring all things into God, to reconcile all things to God, but didn't have the ability or power to do it. That's where, you know, when, when we look where John was weeping, he understood that, you know, this, this was critical uh, information on, on how to bring all things to completion, to fulfillment, and, and, and to, to not be able to, to go. I mean, how many times have we been in a situation where, Either we didn't know what to do, or we knew what to do, but we didn't have the ability or the power or the resources to do it. So uh, heaven has been waiting for someone who has the perfect knowledge of how to bring these things to pass, but also the power, the actual power to get it done and to get it done, to see it. And we would say to see it through, to see it to completion. And when, you, when, we, when we read a little bit later on, this is where it gets really interesting. Pastor, let me, let me ask a, a question um, concerning the seventh spirit that in, in verse 6. Do you, do you think this could be a reference also to Isaiah chapter 11, where it speaks about um, the stump of David's family that will grow short? Yeah. New branch, and it speaks about the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding. Isaiah 11. Yeah, a lot. See, a lot of a lot of a lot of uh, commentators make that connection, and, okay. and and we talked about this, I think, in one of the previous Bible studies. In, in in your Bible that you're reading it out of tonight, there's a very good chance that the the word spirits is capitalized. Uh, has a capital S, 
that means that the people who, who, who interpreted it or who translated this Bible believe that, they are, that this is a reference to the Spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the Isaiah 11 reference, we've already seen that connection. We saw that connection with the root of David. So it would definitely fit into this pattern. Um, the, only, the only hesitation, and I, I'm not trying to cloud the, 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 the interpretation here, I think we're talking about the divine spirit here. But the only hesitation is there's no other place in the Bible that refers to the Holy Spirit um, except for Revelation in the plural or you know in, in the plural sense. Um, spirits versus spirit. And what really makes it tricky, and this is where it gets really, really tricky, is that um, you know there are other mentions of of spirits in the Bible that are, you know are referring to uh, angel, angels or you know other kinds of spirits. So I think we're safe here, brother. I think we're safe to see the spirit of God uh, in in the uh, in the description. I think that's a pretty safe way to interpret scripture by scripture. But the overall meaning, the overall meaning, if you go back to Isaiah 11, the spirit of wisdom and judgment, the spirit of might, the spirit of power, um, um, knowledge. Yeah, I've lost the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, right? The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All of those, all of those, those seven descriptions, the spirit of the Lord, uh, wisdom and understanding, power and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord, all of those. Uh, without question, without hesitation, apply to not only the Holy Spirit, but to specifically the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ. He displayed, you know, uh, you know. The, I forget the verse. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't read it in preparation. But there's, there's a, there's a verse I think in Luke, which talks about Jesus being the one up, upon whom the Spirit of God was poured out without measure. In other words, he received the fullness of the Holy Spirit, uh, and he operated in such perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit that all seven of those characteristics were active in his ministry, in his life. And there's no reason to suppose after his death and resurrection that they ceased, even more so. Uh, if you look at those things, how is the kingdom going to be established in Isaiah 11? It's going to be established by the power of the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might and power and, and, and knowledge and, and the fear of the Lord. That's how it comes to pass. And it's really interesting. You know, we, would, you know, we tend to think that, you know, once we get to heaven or, you know, once we, we transition from this world to that world, we don't, we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore, right? I, I think, I don't know if we even give any thought to that, but it's very clear that the Spirit of God is still very active, active in uh, heaven, uh, even perhaps more so than he is on earth. So, um, 
Yeah, that's a, I think that's a good point, and, and I'm glad you, you, you settled on that because we wouldn't want to miss that, that application. Okay, well, I, I, I can't believe it went this fast, but we've been doing this for an hour. <laughs> so um, we're going uh, to have to stop here and pick up uh, at the beginning, I guess, of Chapter 6 next Wednesday night because, boy, I tell you what, if I, if I break one seal, I've got to break them all, right? All right. Well, praise God. Chapter 5 is just beautiful. Love that song. Love that scene. Love that, just that description. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, you've ever dreamed or thought, you know, what must it have been like to have attended uh, a high holy day at the temple of the Lord in Solomon's time or in David's time or even, even in Jesus' time? What must have been like to to see the, the you know the, the the high priest and all of his glory and to hear the musicians and the singers and the chanters and the shouts and and just all of those things if you've ever thought about that um, or ever considered what it must have been like you're getting a very good picture of it here in Revelation we're at the temple and now we have we have begun this incredible service, uh, and we're going to see what the next steps are as we come back together uh, next Wednesday night. Amen. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 10.30 a.m., For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.